Hey everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com and this is Techie Bytes episode 54. Today I'm speaking with RJ Talier, founder and CEO at Pattern89. We discuss how RJ helped pioneer the concept of SMS marketing in 2002, his time as VP of messaging products at Salesforce, and how what he's building at Pattern89 is changing marketing for brands like Fabletics, Lids, Finish Line, and more. Enjoy. I'm here with RJ Talier, the uh, founder and CEO of a company called Pattern89. Prior to that, he spent some time at Salesforce and Exact Target, which Salesforce acquired. Uh, and he's quite—he's got quite an interesting resume. So, RJ, welcome to the podcast. I'm really uh, thrilled to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, I'm going to start off with the way I always start these podcasts, and you know. To get for us to get an understanding about who you are and what you do on a day-to-day basis, kind of give us a give us the down low on that. Sure, sure. Well, I'm the as you mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO of Pattern Eighty Nine. Uh, we're a, a digital marketing platform that helps marketers decrypt and predict winning digital content with AI. And um, uh, outside of work, I, I'm uh, married. I've got four kids. I swim. I do some amateur bird watching. I would say. Um, but I, you know, I spend most of my time out uh, outside my family at uh, building software, and been doing that for the last 16, 17 years. So, um, and uh, I'm based here in the Midwest in Indianapolis, where I was born and raised, and got uh, into Exact Target really early, and worked there for 10 years through the Salesforce acquisition, and really fell in love with product and product management, and really adopting new technologies. And so that's where I've been spending my time, and um, that led to the founding of. Pattern 89 about two and a half years ago. So that's a quick overview of me and <laughs> oh, yeah, of a of a of a very uh, you know, long career so far. That's like the the, the nuts you know the, the the nutshell version of it. Uh, so on so on a, so on a day to day basis, what's your what do you do at Pattern 89? Obviously, you're the founder and CEO, but what does that entail? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that the the role of a uh, a founder right now is just sales. And um, I think there are three main things I'm doing. One is I'm actually selling our product, working with um, prospective uh, customers and um, really listening to what exactly they want and making sure that our company can do that for them or that we've built it or will build it. So it's really around sales, um, like, you know, as we would traditionally think about it. But then it's also selling our team and uh, making sure that everybody's bought into the vision and the values and how we're going to go about solving these challenges. And so that's really a sales job of sorts as well. And then the, the third is around selling the outside market. So investors as well as potential employees on why you'd want to invest in an AI startup um, or why an, a potential employee would want to come and work at an AI startup. Um, so that's really a sales role as well. So whether it's direct sales to potential customers, selling and kind of uh, rallying up the troops uh, uh, internally, um, and then externally with investors and um, uh, potential employees, I really do view my role as sales, and I never wanted to be in sales. So <laughs> that's I, the- I, I, totally, I totally get that feeling. Yeah. Uh, you know, being a founder myself and having done uh, built a SaaS product in the past. In fact, it sounds like, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk more about Pattern 89, but it sounds like, it almost sounds like if I were to redo what I was doing at Kaya, um, Pattern 89 is kind of what how I would think about it. And oh. I, so I'm really intrigued about learning more about the product. But I'm curious, because you mentioned about sales, right? 
and you're talking about you know you have to sell investors you have to sell customers and then also have to sell employees obviously you're you're uh, in the midwest um how difficult or not difficult has it been to attract talent uh to work at your company and 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 how do you and have you uh you know sold anyone on what you're building you know from from either of the coasts to come to come work in uh with you yeah you know um it, it it's <laughs> um so yes is the short answer to your question we mm-hmm. we got um uh, um, uh, folks out in San Francisco, uh, as well as in Europe, um, who work on our team. And um, we've successfully recruited people to Indianapolis from coastal cities, as well as from places like Chicago, because I think that there's this kind of counter trend going on. And um, it used to be that you'd have to go to Silicon Valley or maybe New York or Boston in order to get involved in a uh, high tech startup. Um, but now with you know everything from Amazon Web Services to the tools and attitudes we have about working from home, we can find really top talent coming from uh, really anywhere in the world who will want to work with us. Um, And then in addition, we've got all this talent here in the Midwest coming out of top engineering schools like Purdue and IU and University of Illinois that used to kind of fly the coop and head west, but um, they found that there's actually lots of opportunity um, everywhere, um, and especially here in Indianapolis for um, building their tech career. So, um, you know, there's, and, and then you kind of pair that with some of the news you see about like the exodus from some of those crowded cities that are overpriced. And, you know, Indianapolis is a, um, it's a million people. It's one of the top 20 um, in terms of population with our sports and arts and culture. Um, along with the the tech scene, which has exploded over the last 10 to 15 years, you can have a really good quality of life for a lot less money. So it's kind of like we got strong tech, um, great lifestyle, and um, some of these tools and attitudes towards work, working remotely or working from home, uh, you know, really kind of working in our favor. So we're able to successfully recruit people or if people want to stay where they are, we can successfully integrate them into the company. So, um, yeah, we, we found that, and, and I guess one other thing I should add is that um, the government is actually really, really supportive of the tech community here. So um, we've got a really strong tech community from uh um, the number of startups and scale-ups, uh, and then also the you know presence of Salesforce, uh, Genesis, Infosys, um, and other tech companies are selecting Indianapolis as a second or um, you know a, uh, North American headquarters, those types of things. So all in, you know, we're on the up and up, which is kind of fun, and that helps a startup like Pattern Eighty Nine really um, ride on their heels. Absolutely, and and everything you said, I can confirm. Not ha- not not because I'm there, but because I've talked to. A number of other founders and CEOs at companies in the Midwest, including Jelly Vision, Clever Bridge, both based in Chicago. And I'm hearing the same things from them as well, that a lot of people are really interested in moving there to those cities or that or, and that they're also, um, you know, super friendly towards, uh, you know, uh, people in terms of wanting to those companies. They just want to get the best people working for them. And it's not necessarily that they, you have to live um in san francisco or new york or boston or wherever to be able to to work at at a really uh, great tech company anymore which is which is wonderful because i think uh, like you pointed out again right you know the cost of living is much lower uh which you know at the end of the day if you can uh if you can if you can work on something you love get paid for it well and still have money in the bank you know that's a win and that's a win in my case (laughs) yeah same same (laughs) awesome so 
uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, s some of the stuff you worked on in the past. You helped pioneer uh, the concept of SMS marketing. This was back in 2002, right? Um, what, 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 what made you think like this was going to be a big deal in the U.S.? Because I, I'm going to take our viewers back in time for a second. In the in the in the 90s and in the early 2000s, text messaging and SMS and MMS were not popular really stateside yet. They were popular in other countries, in Europe and in Asia, but not here. So what kind of, what was it that made you uh, think that, you know, that this was gonna be a big thing here yeah. in the States? Yeah, I mean, just, just to be to fair to, to the truth, we uh, it was back in 2004, so okay. not as you suggested, but um, I would have loved to have started it. Even, <laughs> but, um, you know, um, Back then, Exact Target on an email service platform, or you know, we were an email service provider, and but its mission was to create a digital marketing platform to own all one-to-one -one communications. And at the time, text messaging was used for account alerts, fraud alerts, some password reset stuff. And what we found is that uh, an individual might have an email address and a phone number in a database of record. And marketers wanted to send an email and then another email and then a text message as a third or a fourth touch point if the email had not been opened. So it was kind of a natural extension of the way that customers wanted to use our platform. And um, it wasn't my idea to add SMS, but I was thrown into the fire and said, hey, figure this out. And um, it was kind of my first uh, go at um, product management and um, worked with two developers literally over a weekend to extend our data model uh, and then learn everything about SMS and read all the CTIA um, documentation. And that must have been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's 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 uh, it's not um, that type of stuff. <laughs> Over and over again in tech, it's really fun because if you just do the work of reading something that is as boring as the CTI documentation, or prior to that, I became an expert in the canned spam laws. Um, mm -hmm. Again, like it's something that you just don't really want to read, but if you've read it, then you become an expert. And I started writing all sorts of, you know, top ten tips for this, or um, blogs, and I had a chapter in a book, and then people started inviting me to speak to their CMO or at their conference, and I would do this presentation called Text is Next, which was all about SMS. <laughs> Um, then that led into MMS, as you suggested, and then um, push messaging was the next after smartphones became popular in 2007, 2008, and then geofencing from there, and then Line and WeChat, and you know all this M-commerce stuff. So it, it, it really was the, a natural extension of the way that customers wanted to have that one-to-one -one connection with their customers and um, through all the digital touch points. So SMS was the first extension off of the email model that Exact Target had built, and um, it was... Uh, uh, you know, it was not a popular uh, thing at the time. And it's kind of amazing to see now we see all these text messaging startups who are now attacking the market and um, yeah. conversational commerce. And, um, uh, you know, uh, we're actually seeing a lot more text message spam, um, which was what everybody thought of it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Well, back in 04, 05, everybody was like, oh, we don't want to do text messaging um, because we don't want it to turn into a spammy channel. And, you know, we're seeing marketers um, in some ways have taken it that way, which is sort of inevitable. But um, it, uh, you know, certainly been an exciting ride. And, you know, Pattern 89, we do um, social as, as well as other digital channels. So it's, it's kind of fun to see like that evolution and what's 
not cool is cool again type thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but you know, back in the back in the early days of SMS and the Emmett Mobile Marketing Association, and um, it, it was it was the wild west. I, I love messy new stuff, and that was a fun messy new area that um, I became an expert in. And um, it, it's I think it's kind of the fun part of tech is to find something new and read all the boring documentation and then become the quote unquote expert. I like that. I like that. Read all. So I'm going to quote you on that. I'm going to read all the boring documentation, become an expert. <laughs> On, uh, on 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 those types of boring subjects, but worthy of knowing. Yeah. <laughs> one yeah. one interesting thing I was just thinking while you were talking about this, you know, companies like Twilio didn't even exist when you were doing this, right? Um, and 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 so so did you guys have to build, uh, the you know the way to send these text messages? It all that had to be done in house. Meanwhile, yeah. companies like Twilio now, which which went which went public, um. You know, has provided almost like an uh, an API or an SDK in terms of making it super easy to integrate, you know, text messaging into products these days. But that wasn't always the case, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we um, we connected to um, what are called tier one aggregators, and the aggregators were those that had direct connections to the um, the wireless providers, and so you had to build a, a connection into the um, the aggregators, and each of them have a different standard and um, it, it's really uh, um, uh, some messy work that Twilio and others have done a nice job of making it really simple for marketers to create and launch their um, SMS or mobile programs today. So um, it, it was interesting to see um, Twilio and others rise as experts in that mobile messaging field um, that really have have provided some of the backbone now for these new um, web-based applications that help do that conversational commerce or the text messaging uh, conversational marketing stuff. So um, it, it, it was interesting when we got acquired by Salesforce, um, they partnered with Twilio as well as others. So um, they not only had an SMS engine within Exact Targets acquisition, but also um, partnered with Twilio. And so it led to some interesting dynamics of which solution you're going to go with. Do we standardize? Do we not? And they ultimately ended up using all of them because some people preferred one versus the other. Interesting. So you you uh, you made my segue pretty easy here. Uh, so what? So you were uh, you were you were you were at Exact Target early on, um, and then when you uh, when Salesforce came along and acquired uh, the company, you were uh, I, be I believe became the VP of Messaging Products at Salesforce. Yes. And yep. so what were you working on when you were when you were at Salesforce? Um, was was it a continuation of of this, or was what, were, were there other things as well? Yeah, so I, um, the mobile messaging extended into five product lines, and then it grew um, out of just mobile messaging. Because at that time, it was like um, uh, mobile messaging was becoming just messaging. And mm -hmm. um, uh, because, you know, you can receive and send text messages on your, uh, on, your on your phone, but also on a computer, for example, or like a tablet would get push notifications. And so what was the definition of mobile was really um, evolving into just, general marketing. So um, on the messaging side, it was a VP of messaging products, which included our email messaging, which was, you know, email, but also absorbed, or excuse me, consumed in a mobile context. Um, uh, email, mobile, and um, landing pages or web pages were the three areas that I was responsible for. And um, uh, really understanding how all of those work together from a technical perspective, um, as well as um, how do we create playbooks or how do we play create easy ways for customers to um, integrate all those channels that map to the customer journey because 
customers don't care about those individual um, you know channels and they don't, they don't think of like your experience across the, each individual channel like my email is this and my text message is that it's all flowing um, across one of them so we needed to make it really easy for um, Salesforce customers to um, create cross-channel journeys and that was um, my primary directive. Um, uh, in addition, as a part of the Salesforce acquisition, I got um, the cool opportunity to be a part of the Salesforce world tours and other events and um, travel the globe and be the mobile expert, but just the messaging expert as well. And that was um, a really fun um, opportunity. Um, learned all sorts of stuff ranging from how to work with some of the world's biggest global brands to um, having a speaking coach uh, uh, coach me on um, I thought I was a good speaker at the time, and um, uh, man, I, I learned a ton from that. Experience. So, yeah, I think uh, you're doing pretty well on this podcast episode so far. So well, it seems to be it seems to have worked. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> so I, I, I seriously, I credit uh, Salesforce is a wonderful organization, and they put so much time and energy into their employees, and I definitely benefited benefited from uh, working there. Nice. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about. So obviously, you were you worked at two other companies, and. You were uh, you were VP at Salesforce, and you decided to make the jump, right? You decided, all right, I'm gonna leave Salesforce. I'm gonna start my own thing. I'm gonna become a founder. <laughs> You've been doing this now for you said two and a half years. What were what what have been some of the biggest lessons learned so far for you in this in this journey? Ooh, well, I mean, I've I've learned all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> I I, um, uh, I I think the the biggest one is that you um, as a founder you just don't actually know what it's going to feel like until you're a founder and it's easy to read articles or even listen to podcasts like this and think like oh well you know I can I can do that and you certainly can but um, there's no like real advice that people can give you or training or um, ways to make it feel less painful when the pain comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I I, um, I liken it to I've run a few marathons, and I'm not a I actually grew up swimming. I'm not a good runner, but I've run a few marathons, and I liken it to in a marathon uh, when you're in mile 22 of a marathon, it's like it's the worst. It's it's you know, but like you you trained for it, and you know you can finish the marathon, but mile 22 just your legs are dragging, you're you're feeling like it's never gonna get to mile 23, um, and then you just got to keep going. And um, you feel proud and excited, and people are cheering you on, and um, you're in it, and you want to finish, and you're really, you know, pumped up and that type of stuff. But it hurts, and you got to just keep going. And I, I kind of liken um, the the first year or two of, of a startup um, as, as feeling like that, which is, you know, Mile you just got twenty-two, gotta, <laughs> yeah, and you got to keep going, and um, it's worth it. And um, I'm still a little bit in mile 22 at, at Pattern 89, <laughs> um, maybe 23, I don't know. Um, nowhere near the finish line, but, um, you know, just really learning and cranking. And um, you see those funny diagrams and say, like, at 8 a.m. it feels awesome. And then at 9 a.m. you're like, this is the worst. And then yep. at 10 a.m. you're, like, on top of the world. And, you know, you kind of go through this, you know, ups and downs that my wife is like, wait, are things going well or not? I can't tell. Um, <laughs> yeah. It can literally shift within a matter of minutes. Yes. I've had that happen. Yeah. <laughs> but like that's the excitement you know I, I i loved working at a bigger company but um i wanted to be in a startup because i i love that hands-onness and i love seeing the immediate impact um and um 
uh, either positive or negative of, of a decision. And that's really fun for me right now in this part of my career. So, um, so I think that the biggest lesson or the biggest thing I've learned is like, you just can't even train for it. You just got to jump and then, mm -hmm. and then kind of get through it. So that, that's kind of the, the biggest thing I've learned so far. No, that's, I think that's I think that's sage advice. That makes that makes sense. It it aligns definitely with uh you know things that I've went through. Definitely feels like mile twenty two a lot. Uh, not that I've run any marathons or anything, but <laughs> but uh, speaking of marathons though, real quick to hop off topic, I'm curious. The New York City marathon's coming up. Uh, have you ever have you ever run that one? No, no, I've only run Chicago. I've run Chicago okay. three times. And um, uh, I kind of like that idea of running Chicago three times because then you know, uh, you know, like there's no reason, like you know, if you're doing it better or worse. My my sisters actually run the New York Marathon and just loved it. So someday, um, I, I don't have time to train for a marathon at this point, but someday, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah no, definitely, to... it's a lot of fun. I, I mean, even at me as a spectator, they run right by my my apartment actually. So everyone who runs by, I'm outside with my wife and we're cheering them on. Uh, it's such a great kind of event, but. Nonetheless, <laughs> we're going to actually take a quick break with RJ. Stay tuned. This podcast is supported by Ahrefs. So you have a website and you want to rank better? Of course you do. Ahrefs is designed to be an amazing all-in-one SEO tool. In fact, I've been testing it and it lets me do things like generate millions of keyword ideas, discover new trending keywords every month, examine the ranking history of my site's individual pages, and even identify content gaps and opportunities. They also just launched the latest beta of their Keywords Explorer product. The new Keywords Explorer features clickstream data from 10 major data sources, including Google, YouTube, Amazon, Bing, and Yahoo. So now, when you start seeing even more best techie all over the web, you know who to thank. Go ahead, check them out at ahrefs.com. That's A-H-R-E-F-S.com. Oh, and feel free to tell them I sent you. All right, and we're back with RJ Talier. Uh, so RJ, we're going to talk about pattern 89 right now, which I know you've probably been itching to talk about. Uh, <laughs> I have, I've been itching to hear, uh, to, to learn more about it actually. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what pattern 89 is and how the product works. Sure. Sure. So pattern 89, it's a predictive creative content platform. And what it does is answers the question of why did something that we ran in market work or not work? And then it also predicts what will work and what won't work. So the, the best way to think about it is if you're running ads on Facebook or Instagram or sending an email, some human is deciding this should be our headline or this image or video should be used because it best represents our objective and our brand. With Pattern 89, we can predict whether or not that ad or piece of content will work within 5%. So we can take the guesswork out of trying new stuff um, and uh, really um, reduce the need or even eliminate the need for the time, money, effort, et cetera, required in A-B testing, which is normally how those types of decisions are being made. Yeah. So um, we're, we're using artificial intelligence to predict what works and what doesn't work and um, specifically 2,900 different algorithms that look at your creative and use, uh, you know, identify whether there's a, for example, a picture of a man or a woman, are they smiling? Are they in front of a bicycle or a mountain? Is the color red or green pervasive? Uh, how many nouns, verbs, subjects, 
um, uh, how many emojis, how many exclamation points, all those decisions that humans make in copywriting or in selection of um, photos or videos, um, the machine will surface those patterns and outliers and then the human can decide among the best performers rather than just kind of taking a guess. Mm -hmm. So that, so obviously the, the 29 different algorithms, that's the secret sauce, right? But so how, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not sure if anyone's ever asked you this. How, how did you come up with the things that needed to be looked at uh, <laughs> to determine these algorithms? Yeah. Well, and, and, and it's 2,900. So there's, oh, 20, a, I'm sorry, 2,900. My, my 3,000. Yeah. Well, and I'll, and I'll tell you, <laughs> It's 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 we're back to mile 22 of a marathon. There's no pretty version of the story. It's literally sitting in a room with um, <laughs> our data science team and um, product manager and a software engineer and kind of playing the game of guess who you ever done that like um, like uh, where, where you, you're like, uh, does the person have glasses on? No. Okay. Does the person and this person smiling? No. And what we would do is we would literally go through all the different ways that we could cut the data and ask, is there signal here? Is there signal here? Is there signal there? Could we look at color palettes? Yes, no. And then we would run the analyses and find, oh, no, not yet. Um, can we look at the number of emojis? Um, and we just cut every different um, piece of creative decision making into a yes no question and then ran the analysis is there delta or is there signal in uh, predictive signal mean, meaning can we predict the performance of something as a result of looking at that in isolation or in you know in, in confluence with other dimensions and then we just kept doing it and built up this um, list of now 2,900 different things that automate, automatically do the same thing um, every day. So every 24 hours we rerun the analyses and we're adding to those um, 3,000 or so dimensions um, and uh, continuing to like get more and more granular so that we can help humans be more creative by mm -hmm. taking a lot of guesswork out of it. So, but when you, when you, when you had the idea to start this company though, before you did anything, let's say like, like, Let's say you, you, you decided to start this company. What was, did you have any idea that this is that this was the approach that you were thinking about, take, that you were going to end up taking? Or how did this come to be? That's kind of what I'm trying to get at here. Like, So the, 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 um, as I was starting the company, I went and interviewed all these digital marketers. And I knew that I wanted to dig into digital marketing. And I knew that I wanted to um, help marketers figure out what to do. Because in my career, digital marketers have been frustrated by why something's working or not working. And I ended up with a problem statement, which is really the problem statement I fell in love with, which is I want to experiment, but I'm accountable for delivering results. And so every wow. market says, you know, I want to try that new thing, but you know, I got to hit my quarterly goal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be Black Friday here um, and I got to really nail it. So I'd love to try that new technology, that new idea, that new something, but I got to hit this target. So um, what I, um, and that continues to be the driving question underneath Pattern 89, which is, you know, how do we get marketers to try new stuff but also deliver results? Because, you know, you, if you do an A-B test and you spend two, three weeks and thousands of dollars and time and effort and you find two dogs, that's wasted time and you might get fired for it. Um, right. so how do you instead give customers a way to try all those wild ideas, those human ideas, all that creative stuff that's human only. And I really focus on that cause that's what machines can do is help humans find ways to test their ideas. And rather than actually running an AB test, we simulate it. 
um, using a giant data set and all the predictive algorithms. So um, we're still, you know, the idea is, is really the core of it. I want to experiment, but I'm accountable for delivering results. How do we help marketers try all those weird ideas that they've got in their head without wasting money, time, effort, energy, or getting fired? So that's really the core of it. And that's, you know, we tried a few different um, iterations of that in, in Pattern 89's history, but we really uh, locked in about a year and a half ago on um, the predictive creative performance um, and the way that we're delivering that. And it's working, you know, really, really well. On average, our customers see a 21% lift um, just in top line performance, as well as the time saved and effort saved. And artificial intelligence, I think, is just in its uh, nascent uh uh, time to you know and, and just we're just unlocking ways that it can help humans be more creative and more human definitely so I, I, I saw this stat that um, you've had customers see ROI as high as 65% and as little as 15 days mm-hmm. so my question in this uh, for you is how and I think you kind of alluded to this before when you're talking about how uh, you know, they, people get fired, you know, they, they want to experiment, but they, they don't want to, you know, get fired at the same time. Um, how important is speed or, the, uh, the you know, how fast a customer sees uh, results uh, to, to, to being able to hook them and get them to turn into a, 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 a you know, a loyal customer? Yeah, most customers want to see some sort of impact um, in 30 days or less. And, um that's uh, what we what we deliver um, because you know customers want to invest in technologies that are helping them and they're putting their neck on the line to try something new and so they want to say yep it's working quickly they don't have you know um, the average tenure of a CMO is around 18 months and if it takes you a year to get results you're maybe on, already moving on to your next gig meanwhile as a startup we won't have captured your attention for that long. Um, you know, especially when in the marketing field, there's so many things to get done in a day. So we've got to um, get in there, quickly deliver value um, so that people continue to invest money, time, effort in artificial intelligence and in Pattern 89 specifically because we're not moving the needle. They're going to find something else that is. Definitely. So how, so how do you go about proving your worth uh, to, you know, to, the, to the decision makers in the company and also obviously the people that are using the product day in and day out? to make these uh, decisions with their creative and things like that? Yeah, well, um, we get to work immediately. There's a two-click setup for Pattern 89, and we've made it simple to get up and running. So there's no installation of anything or um, integration required. Literally, it's two clicks, so we can get you up and running in about 30 seconds. Um, The account gets spun up within the first 12 hours, um, so we can go from two clicks to a full account and do a full creative audit um, uh, within 12 hours for a customer. So that um, initial uh, kind of energy and excitement from getting a customer up and running to um, time to value is um, uh, really, I think, a big differentiator for us. And then our algorithms recalculate on a daily basis, so we can make impact on campaigns that are running immediately. Um, and um, typically customers see the value in terms of their numbers um, change in the first two to three days in a positive way and then really over the first 14 days or so we can really say see the numbers are really ticking up um, as well as changing processes and um, uh, you know maybe systems that um, uh, like workflows on their creative development so that's, that's a little bit of a longer change but in the meantime we can show that the overall value of the platform is delivering it um, well beyond what its uh, cost is um, within that first 14, 
15 days ish yeah I, you know i definitely agree with you in terms of the the seamless kind of setup and integration is critically important especially for any SaaS based company uh you want to make the onboarding process as seamless as possible when i was working on kaya the analytics company that i built uh early on it became very clear to me that setup was something we had to spend a ton of time on getting right because if it's if it's too cumbersome too complicated too clunky you know not easy enough to get uh set up and on board you know people are busy they have other things they have to work on and and they're taking some time out of their day to set up something new you have to make it as easy as possible for them uh in order to you know have a chance at all Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. We, uh, um, you know, especially as a um, kind of the underdog in a startup world, you know, their customers just don't have the patience for um, uh, for a long setup or a long integration period. Um, they want to see some immediate results. So that's one of the things we've really invested in is a quick setup and um, uh, kind of uh, prove the immediate value and then grow from there. And that's been a successful strategy for us. Very nice. So I want to talk a little bit about AI. Because uh, you you mentioned it, and I want to talk, uh, I want to get your opinion in terms of how does AI uh, help marketers or allow marketers to do better jobs? So like how are, and especially with Pattern eighty nine, what kind of AI uh, you know do you have uh, running there, and how and how does it allow marketers to do, to do better work? Yeah, well, you know the the um, my core belief is that uh, humans are. Uh, or marketers are best at creative idea generation. And um, over the last, let's say, 10 years, marketers have been told you have to go to the data, 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 data. And I totally agree with that. But effectively, we've asked marketers, hey, think more like a machine. Think more like a machine. You have to go more and more more into data. And we've gotten more and more away from the things that are really human, like creativity or strategy or ethics. Um, and the way that Pattern 89 and other AI platforms work is to um, do the work that machines can do, um, culling through huge amounts of data, finding patterns and outliers that humans can't find, even with sophisticated SQL queries or pivot tables or VLOOKUPs or things that <laughs> marketers do um, or that I learned how to do. You know, the machines have outpaced us and we're not going to catch up in the ways that they can find outliers and patterns. And instead, what we're going to do is do things that machines can't do and get back to the things that are really important for brands and marketers to do, which is understand our customers, have empathy for those customers, create experiences and brands that are differentiated from other brands, um, create new ideas, and then use artificial intelligence to simulate or pretest those ideas to understand whether or not they're going to be good ones. Um, and also understanding are these ideas ethical? Are they um, are they in line or out of line with uh, the way that we want to portray ourselves in the market? Those types of things. So we ultimately need to direct the machines. And um, so AI and Pattern eighty nine specifically helps marketers to become more creative because we can quickly and rapidly iterate through the bad ideas and ask marketers, "Hey, come up with a new one." Try a new one. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Um, rather than asking marketers to act more like machines, we can let the machines be machines and let humans be the creators. I like that a lot, especially uh, especially because one of the things I would tell people when when I was talking to, uh, about Kaya 
and, and, and to potential customers and customers is that, you know, our job, uh, the way we see it, is our job is to make it so you could spend less time staring at numbers and mm-hmm. more time, you know, creating great content is what we I used to say. And yeah. so and that, and that's essentially what you're saying here, which I think is great because I 100 percent agree with you. You know, machines are definitely better at finding the outlines and patterns and things like that, because that's what they're designed to do. That That's essentially exactly what they're designed to do. And meanwhile, humans are definitely much more creative, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, I think, you know, playing on uh, playing on each other's strengths uh, will lead to better results in the end for any company or uh, that you know that's leveraging uh, this kind of technology in addition with a good uh, employee or employees yeah yeah so I want to talk last question before we get to the lightning round and, and it's been great uh, talking to you this conversation has been really uh, really eye-opening I think for me and also I think just super interesting especially as someone who's into you know this type of uh, content uh you know analytics and and creativity and figuring out what's working what's not because essentially i think it's important um to be able to for for machines to be able to you know do what they do best and for humans to be able to also do what they do best and not you know like we were just talking about so where do you see the future of ai as it pertains to let's uh marketing in the in say like the next five years or so uh do you see a, a a continuing shift in the way we're moving that we just discussed or or um are we gonna make several jumps ahead or what do you you see well you know i think it's going to be um a a a consistent um i think we're going to see a consistent pace i think that there's a lot of anxiety about artificial intelligence ranging from what happens if the machine is in control of our brand um what happens if the machine goes kind of out of control um, so there's a, there's just a general like uh, reservation there, and there's reason to be worried. Um, you know, ethics is top of mind for that. Um, if a, a marketing machine is deciding what we stand for, what we don't stand for, we could see, uh, you know, things from misogynist to racist to right. just look um, at the Microsoft uh, Tay bot on Twitter. Yeah. There- yeah. yeah, there's lots of examples of that, and, and and oftentimes, you know, we look to those as kind of doomsday scenarios. But um, on the flip side, I think that we're going to see more and more piloting and experimentation with this human-machine um, pairing. That uh, machines are going to produce um, uh, quick and amazing results for marketers to um, differentiate their brands, and so I think that the importance of creativity will reemerge for marketers. And so many marketers come from like liberal arts backgrounds, art backgrounds, um, and I think that those skills are going to be even more and more important. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to be like one day we're going to turn around, AI is going to be taking over everything. Instead, I think it's going to be a slow um, but steady adoption over the next five years. But I'd say in 10 years, we're going to be wondering why anybody didn't already adopt this thing in the same way that like back in 2004, we talked about mobile as something different. Um, and we would say like, hey, mobile, what's your mobile strategy? And <laughs> a digital marketer today what's your mobile strategy they'd be like uh, you know just my do you mean like my strategy because everything's mobile right um and we used to put a little lowercase m in front of everything like m commerce <laughs> right, right, you know, right 
web or whatever. Um, and you know, we talk a lot about what's your AI strategy today. Um, in ten years, we're just going to be like, hey, what's your marketing strategy? And of course, AI is an empowering technology within it. So um, over the next, I think over the next five years, we're going to see a lot more like experimentation, roles changing, the importance of creativity emerge again. Um, but in ten years, it'll just be something that we're doing. Nice. Yeah, that that makes sense. I I, uh, I tend to. I tend to feel the same way in the sense that, you know, I, I think there obviously should be concerns with AI, but I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think we're nearly at the point where we have to worry about them, um, you know, taking over the world or anything. But, but certainly it could have negative impacts on brands if you're not careful. If you just rely too heavily on an AI to make decisions based on data, because that can be manipulated by people. Um, so it's something to definitely beware of, uh, for any brands out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So RJ, you made it through the toughest part of the entire episode. So <laughs> congratulations. We have now arrived at the lightning round, which of course is supported by Wix. You can create a professional website today. That's wix.com, wix.com. So RJ, whenever you're ready, you let me know and we'll get started. All right. I'm ready. Lightning round. Let's do All it. Right, here we go. If you could time travel, where would you go? Ooh, I'd go back to the 80s. <laughs> I love, yeah. Nice. I, love I, I mean, yeah, I was born at the tail end of the 80s, so okay. <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, well, stranger things, no stranger things. But I don't want any monsters or stuff, but uh, back to the 80s would be fun. Nice. If you could eat only three foods for the rest of your life, what would they be? Uh, tacos, ice cream, and sushi. Oh, those are wonderful choices. <laughs> what is the uh, the current number of unanswered emails in your inbox? Oh, man. Um, 568. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you're not alone. Just know that. <laughs> uh, what's your cure for hiccups? Uh, holding my breath. I, I, I do that. Hold my breath. <laughs> you found that that works pretty well for you? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> you just hope one day it'll actually work. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, last one. Here we go. What would you do if you were invisible for a day? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I would just – I would snoop on strangers for sure. Like I, <laughs> I – I have, you know, I, um, being from Indianapolis, and this is not like too, like being from Indianapolis, you know a lot of people, and you walk around and you know people, and I find there is a level of invisibility when I go to New York, for example, and like you don't run into like your third grade teacher on the street, or you don't mm -hmm. run into everybody in the tech community, and um, I feel that way when I go to New York and London, and not snooping on strangers, but you can just like observe the world in a way that, uh, I don't know, doesn't have any consequence, so I'd probably just, yeah. I'd, you know, nothing weird. I just, you know, like <laughs> you could do a lot of a lot of people watching that way. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> awesome. Well, RJ, it's been great having you on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And if, uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, we're pattern89.com or I'm RJ at pattern89.com. I'd love to um, hear from you. Excellent. Well, thanks again, RJ. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, 
please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.